Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, joining me on Postcards from a Dying World, uh, one of my favorite people in the publishing industry, uh, my longtime editor and publisher, Rose O'Keefe of Eraserhead Press. But she has published so much. Uh, the amount of bizarro fiction that this woman has put out into the world is super awesome. I hate to start on a depressing topic, but... I did want to put a shout out in this episode to a person from the Bizarro community that we lost in the last week, and that's Teresa Pollock. And I hate to start on a, on a sad note, but I just, she was so important to the community because she was one of the best um, and most vocal fans of the Bizarro movement. I only really knew Teresa through social media as most of us did. Um, but I know we just wanted to put, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and uh but welcome rose i'm sorry to do it on that note but uh it's really great to have you here thanks david yeah um no i think that's really nice i i too would like to send my sympathies out to all the friends and family of teresa that was really heartbreaking news i was um you know friends with her on social media as well and it she was actually the first person to ever send me personally fan mail like usually people send fan mail to the authors that I publish. And so that was really special to me. She sent me a handmade card and everything. And actually tomorrow in Portland, um, Constantine Fitzgerald has put together a memorial at Laurelhurst Park. So we're going to do that for her. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, yeah. and, and I think that that um, shows a level of awareness of the role that you play in this, in this movement. And you said, yeah, normally it's the authors that get the letters, the letters, but I know your authors and the people that you've published know how much hard work you put in and have put into to the community. Where did your love of reading um, and fiction start? Like, how did you fall in love with books and reading in general? Well, I remember the exact moment, David. So uh, <laughs> when I was in kindergarten, um, my friends and I, we had a carpool, so the, the moms would share, uh, the duty of taking the kids to school every day. And, uh, so I would always ride in a car with all of my group of friends, like five other kids. And most of them were a year older than me. So they were all starting to read before I knew how to read. And there was a game that they would play on the way to school where they would read out the billboards or the signs of the shops that we were passing by. And I was so jealous of their ability to identify those words that I started memorizing what they were so that I could play the game too, because it was like whoever could read it first. So I would seem like I had read it, but it was really that I had memorized where they were and I, I was calling them out before anyone else. Um, but it gave me this hunger, like jealousy, drive to like, I wanted to learn to read because I knew that I was just faking it. And um, so I was at school and they gave us those 
Dick and Jane books? Seriously. <laughs> we, and I was, uh, it was Arizona and toward the end of the school year, they let the kids sit outside and we had quiet reading uh, period. It was like 15 minutes or something. So you could sit in the grass and you had your Dick and Jane book and the sun was out and it was always pleasant. It was like my favorite part of school. And we would all just kind of look at the pictures and stare at the words and they were trying to teach us to read and I knew the alphabet and everything. But um, I remember one day sitting in the sun outside in the grass and looking at that book and then suddenly like in a flash, it all became clear. I suddenly could read it and I could read every page and I could read any other book that I picked up. It was really weird. So it was a really super memorable experience, but from that moment, it was like I had unlocked a secret code and now I had access to any type of information that I wanted. And I got really into, I mean, before that I was still, I was already into storytelling through, you know, visual media and, and audio, audio, what do you call it? oratory no anyway the word's not coming to me but i'll let i'll let you flounder around with that a little bit but uh. yeah yeah cool I, I'm, <laughs> I'm still having my morning coffee um so that's my story about how i got into reading and i and i never stopped and it was one of those things where my parents were um they were pretty uh aware of what type of media that I was consuming. They limited how much TV I could watch each day. I had an hour. I could choose one thing on PBS. That was the only station I was allowed to watch. And, uh, but books, I could read any book I wanted. So that was where it was at. Yeah, my, my father established that rule with me when I was young enough that I wanted to have books or I wanted anything that anyone was gonna spend money on. So when he said, I'll buy you any book if you can prove to me that you read it, I was like, I want that one, that one, that one. And, uh, you know, I, it might have backfired on him a little bit, but that's how I became a big fan of Isaac Asimov when I was way too young to understand most of the concepts that were there. But yeah, well, what I think is, is cool, because I, I know a little bit just from from watching fun stuff that you post on social media that you have really interesting parents. And I think that a lot of those of us who come to this have really cool like parents that encouraged us in cool ways. Um, you know, I, my father's a political scientist and um, really into ideas and reading. And so that's how it happened for me. But can you tell me a little bit about how, cause you mentioned a little bit about your parents encouraging you, but maybe go a little deeper on that. Cause I think that's really interesting. I'd be happy to, because I was just thinking about that. My parents were both elementary school education, you know, and they were both teachers. So they were really into being parents. And they, you know, when I was born, it was like they had prepared to have a child. I was like their big project, you know, so they were really into parenting. And uh, they were also, uh, you know, kind of coming out of the hippie movement and, they were practicing transcendental meditation and they were eating all natural foods and we were vegetarians and they taught me to meditate when I was four. And uh, yeah, they were, like I said, they were kind of really trying to uh, control what I was consuming because they were um, aware of the effects and influences that things can have on young minds. So they wanted to feed my mind with nurturing 
things, which I mean, as I've grown up, it's kind of interesting because I have very like rosy colored view because of that sort of upbringing. And it wasn't until I got older that I really had to learn how to embrace the dark side of things and to not walk away from negative, you know, seemingly to the new age eye negativity, you know, and right. that was even things like wearing black. I mean, you look at me now, I'm wearing all black. So clearly like I was a rebel, but it, it, I have this interesting mixture because of being so um, kind of censored in, in that way. Uh, it, made me more curious to explore all of those taboo things and it wasn't taboo in what you would traditionally maybe think because um you know it was things like eating meat oh my gosh you know which that's <laughs> I'm on that page. you have your own personal views about how dark that is yeah. <laughs> but um you know there's like those kind of uh, horror and stuff i didn't see my first horror film until i was in fourth grade and it was at a a sleepover and uh we watched carrie that was the first horror film that i saw and i remember because we were all so scared that nobody could keep their eyes open to see the ending like the ending happened with the hands coming out of the grave you know there were that that last like jump scare shot and uh we all never we had to rewind the video and see what happened again because we all looked at each other and said what happened i don't know it's too scary <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm always interested in everybody's parents because I, I always think it's such an important thing. I remember uh, many years ago at BizarroCon having a conversation with John Skip where I was like, I went really deep to asking him questions about his parents. And it was really funny because John at one point was like, he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm really excited by how interested you are in my parents. And oh, I thought, that's so cool. I do think <laughs> that, you know, understanding people's ancestors helps understand them um, yeah yeah i just my parents were super cool yeah i just always found that um i just know what an impact you know my parents had on me so i'm always when when i when i'm around an artist or a writer or somebody who's really interesting if if they if they for whatever reason give a kernel and mention it it's always a, a something that i'm always like oh that's interesting and kind of go down that route I know your father is kind of walking the earth like Kane from Kung Fu at this point. Yeah, really he is, awesome. he's amazing. Just a world traveler. He, he lives, all that he owns is what he keeps in his backpack. And he lives a pretty nomadic lifestyle, just exploring small towns around, you know, India and Mexico and Thailand and wherever he feels like going. Um, yeah, it's pretty great. I, I, so whenever you post something about your dad, I always get excited to, to see what he's up to. It's because it's it's one of those things. It's, it's always so interesting. So uh, uh, keep those coming, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so they yeah. Well, the other thing about my parents is that they were both entrepreneurs. I mean, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and they also were, um, you know, real free thinkers, and they encouraged me to uh, to pursue whatever it was that I wanted to, you know, they were teaching me values of, of kindness and of generosity and, and truthfulness and all of that. And, and that has served me well, you know, that, that kind of, uh, my stepdad, he's an architect and that also influenced me because I learned at a young age that someone, 
you know, he would drive me around town and show me the buildings that he had designed. And it really struck me that everything that is existing, you know, that's man-made first started in someone's imagination. And that that's how things happen, you know, and that was so powerful and had such an impact on my young mind because then I, I understood that, that power of creativity. Well, one thing that I've always changed the, the world, you know, change the shape of the world. And yeah, I can see that too, and how, and how you do things because you've always done things in a really structured way. You always have a, a, a plan or a way that, 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 you know, nothing's done haphazardly. And um, it, it, you know, it's funny because when you put out books like The Haunted Vagina or whatever, like people might have this idea that it's like, kind of like, you know, punk rock and, you know, but um, from the very beginning when I was publishing with you guys, it was like, let's, let's think about the title. Let's think about this. Let's think about, you know, how you're going to do this. And it wasn't, you know, it was always a structure, and I bet that um, influence of being around an architect probably had something to do with that. You know, but uh, but yeah, I like to I like to look at those things. But um, but anyways, um, but uh, yeah. So uh, but then you got into like you know goth and those kinds of things growing up, and I'm sure that played a, played a role in, in in how you evolved too. I, I just wonder about the the teenage rose and how that led to uh <laughs> to doing eraser head oh yeah well i'd say that the most obvious correlation is that when i was in high school um i was i was really into writing writing poetry especially i won the poetry contest at the school district three out of the four years that i was there i uh was I, I loved that there was a literary magazine at my school, but they decided this, in my junior year, the school district cut the funding for the literary magazine. So it was no longer. And um, so what I did, I asked the, the school if I could make the literary magazine an independent study project because there was a, a um, um, an elective called independent study. So you could take that elective instead of like PE or art or something, and then you could choose your own independent study path. So I asked if I could do the literary magazine as my independent study, and they thought that was a cool idea. So I chose that project and did it my um, junior year and edited it and published it, found a way to like raise the funds to get it printed. And then I distributed it to the whole school district and the school was so impressed that then they brought the project back because they realized that students were still interested and that it was something that was valuable. So um, that was kind of my first taste of what it was like to be a publisher, I guess. Um, you know, having that vision and then figuring out a way to put it together and, and get it out there to people. Um, and yeah, I was involved in all of the various types of alternative scenes of punks and weirdos and goths and hippies and you know all of that and I was also a really studious person so I didn't party at all in high school I was totally straight edge I uh you know got straight A's I graduated fourth in my class and went to Smith College after that you know like I, I was a pretty 
serious person. So yeah, the things that I would get in trouble for, um, I ditched PE once so that I could work on my AP history report in the library. And <laughs> they caught me in the library and sent me to the principal. And I looked at the principal and I was like, are you seriously going to tell me that going to PE today was more important than studying history? Like, <laughs> and he just laughed at me. He's like, don't do it again. <laughs> well, yeah, that kind of, all that makes a lot of sense to seeing the ingredients that um, are under the surface. Um, I also, uh, along with the parents, the other thing is the community that you grow up in. Um, Blue, mm -hmm. Indiana, my hometown is a huge part of my DNA um and like how i turned out to be the person that i am and you grew up in arizona which um i don't know a lot about arizona so i don't know how much um but I, i'm sure the um the heat forges everyone <laughs> there to a certain degree oh i love that metaphor sure hell yes it did that place is hot as fuck <laughs> i can curse right yeah so it's hot and uh I hated it there, especially as a goth that wanted to wear all black and like never show my legs, wear fishnet stockings and like, you know, uh, full makeup and everything. It was, I would just melt in the summertime. Um, but uh, yeah, I stayed inside a lot and read books. Um, no, I think that the biggest influence, to, what? That probably did add to it, staying inside yeah. a lot. <laughs> but, um, that's the thing, the biggest contribution I think or influence that growing up in Phoenix, Arizona had on me um, was there was a real, it was, okay, first off, it's a, the desert, obviously, but it's this really unnatural terraformed place that I saw being constructed as I was growing up. So, you know, the town I lived in when I was 21 didn't even really exist when I was two. Um, and it just kind of, there's this massive sprawl that keeps happening and the desert that can't support it. It's, it's really bad. But um, the culture there is just so focused on sports and old people. Mm. And that's about all I could find. Um, so there was this like, real sense of camaraderie anytime you saw someone that had an interesting tattoo or like a weird colored hair or you know if they had some piercing you were like oh my gosh there's my people and you felt totally comfortable just talking to any stranger that exhibited any sign of being different from like the average person in arizona and uh and also all of us shared this like kind of yearning to escape that place so as soon as I could leave, I did. And uh, I was amazed, like coming to Portland, one of the things that attracted me to Portland was that there was actually an arts culture here and a literary scene. And the fact that people painted their houses different colors, like colorfully, because in, in Phoenix, everything is this sort of beige tile roofs, tan everything looks the same you know and anything that it lasts for longer than 30 years is torn down and re redone it's like there's no history or yeah there, it's a 
I mean, I actually like it more now I've, I, I, because I, I've fallen back in love with the beauty of the desert, the natural environment of Arizona, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with. Mm-hmm. But the city and Phoenix awful. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I do really enjoy, especially as a stargazer, I enjoy visiting the desert. And... Oh, the high desert, like northern Arizona, if you go kind of uh, before you get to the Grand Canyon, um, off to the east a little bit. Oh my gosh, it's the amazing, most beautiful, what's it called? Crate, uh, there's a crater out there. Anyway. Yeah, well, um, Trevino and I, Anthony Trevino and I did a riding retreat out to the mountains here, the high mountain, the high desert mountains. Uh, Julian got a cabin and it was funny because every night, like I would just put a blanket out <laughs> on the driveway and just lay down. And uh, I think he was like, is he still out there? Because <laughs> I would just, just stare up at the sky and just let yeah. him go. And that was something I used to do, actually, like, whenever I felt too oppressed by the city, I would just drive out to the desert. My friend had a truck, and we'd throw a, a mattress in the back of her truck bed, and then we'd drive up oh, to the, de- the high desert and just lay out there under the stars. It was awesome. So I, I completely relate. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I was, because when we did that retreat, I was on the edge of finishing a novel, and... Um, and a lot of it's a first contact novel and so a lot of it so like sitting and contemplating the universe is something that you know was was super helpful for those last moments of the book and 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 uh we know because a a lot of writers in our community have taken advantage of the idea of getting out and going somewhere and doing the retreat and um there's something so valuable about like getting out of your own space for a little while I think that what it does is that um, it allows you to relax and focus. So if you define a specific time that has a start time and an end time and give yourself a specific space where you will feel comfortable yet undisturbed and undistracted and that you um, kind of, you don't necessarily have to know ahead of time what you're going to be doing in there, but you have to get yourself in the right mindset that you're going to work on something like that's all you're going to do there. And you're not going to do anything else and outside of sleep or eat or, you know, barely do any of that. Then, uh, then yeah, I think that's one of the most amazing ways to just immerse yourself in your work. And it's been I've seen it to be especially effective um, for people that are struggling with getting started on something new, you know, that can really be a good kickstart or alternatively finishing something that is already just kind of languishing and going in and just being like, okay, this is it. We're getting it done. Well, what was cool for Trevino and I was he was starting a book and I was finishing. And then we kind of started spitballing some of the ideas for things we want to work on in the future. In our How own. long did you go? Was it a week or three days? days? Or we did five, five days. days. Yeah. That's a good time. Yeah. Well, especially since we were doing it together because, you know, with two people in a cabin, it's <laughs> like that could get a little, little something. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. Um, but speaking of, of the, the writing community, I think, I think there is some information out there about how Eraserhead started. There's been, especially, you know, I, there, yeah. 
there is some knowledge of that there were a couple of collective of different publishers and writers and things that kind of came together and and you kind of coalesced them in the beginning and and um and there were definitely it wasn't just you there were other publishers and and um in the beginning but um yeah i don't maybe we should review that a little bit but uh like how did the idea to to take publishing you know as as a step forward for you happen so yeah um i got involved after Razorhead press was already going but it was in its early early stages so it started in 1999 carlton malik started a chapbook press and he was hand stapling you know photocopied chapbooks of various people's works like uh doug rice and his own work and uh, some other people like actually he got some really good writers back then that were at the beginning of their careers and it's fun to see kind of where they've gone to but um, and he would he would design the covers it was just kind of like a little passion project to get work out there and it was back in that kind of late 90s punk era where you know the internet was in existence but things were still um, sent through the mail. So you had a website and it'd be like, send me $3 money order and I'll send you a chat book, that kind of thing. Um, and then there was in, in 2000, six of the uh, six writers came together. Carlton was one of them and they formed the Eraserhead Press Collective. So that was kind of, there was the chapbook years, then there was the collective. And the idea there was that it was six authors, they were going to publish six books. Each book would be edited by all the other five. And then they would publish them on sort of an umbrella platform called Eraserhead Press. And they would share all the profits. So the person that wrote the book would get 50%. And then all the other people involved got their 10%. And then the concept was that they would all help promote each other and they would help um, you know, they had helped edit it and it was kind of like they were all invested in all those six projects and then the concept would be passed along to kind of the next wave of six that wanted to do it. And um, that's how it was conceived. The execution of it, six books were released. Uh, Carlton ended up doing the bulk of the actual like designing and uh, doing that stuff. So he kind of felt like I guess everybody kind of felt like he was the publisher, even though that wasn't really what he had felt like he was. Well, I think, and, I think it's important to note here too, that what uh, Eraserhead was doing at this point is that, um, and we now know clearly there was an audience, but these were writers and storytellers and stories that would never have found a home. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And right. I mean, it was Satanburger. It was uh, Kafka Effect by D. Harlan Wilson. Um, it was a few others, and uh, yeah, they were they were things that were falling outside of any traditional uh, publishing format or for, forum, even small presses. You know, nobody was touching this kind of work at that time, and. Um, so that was that's the heart of DIY and why that stuff happens. 
That's yeah. It's like you want to see something exist in the world, so you make it happen. You know, and that's that's the kind of that's why I kind of connected with that whole group of people too, because that's the spirit that I come from. So I was seeing what they were doing, and uh, and I really liked. Uh, you know, what was happening there, what the books were, the energy behind it, the concept of the collective appealed to me. All of that was great. Um, but yeah, there was no leadership involved in that. And it's a bunch of artist egos struggling with each other. And, you know, that can get messy. It's not like there was anything bad that happened, but it was just kind of a, a chaotic, uh, you know, like someone needs to kind of be the engine there, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, I stepped in at a time when it was needing someone that had those skills. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, it was about to just kind of fall apart because it didn't have that, but I thought, it's, uh, I thought it had potential. I thought, hey, this Eraserhead Press concept, these type of books, there's something to this. Like if, if this keeps going, it's, it's going to attract an audience. It's going to get big. Like I know there are readers that want this stuff. And so, um, so I started getting involved in making that happen. Now I, for a second, I want to, we know what happened, which was that you guys found readers, you found a niche, you found a market, you found people to go to. There's hundreds of titles. It's, it's really incredible thing, but I want to look at this on a personal level for you where you whatever direction you felt like you were going in your life versus like the commitment that you made to to art to artistic expression and to doing this business like have you ever thought about i'm sure you have how different your life would be if you didn't have this connection to this art form and to to these artists and and to doing this because you became a champion for um and personally, because you published a bunch of my work, for a lot of us, you became our champion and somebody who, who made our, our dreams be possible. So, you know, I, just that on a personal level, take out the financial, whatever, just how different do you feel your life is because of the commitment you made to, to, to the art? I, that's heavy, I'm sorry, I said it asked it a really heavy way. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. Um, it's one that gives me pause and have to think first. <laughs> For me, artistic expression is an essential part of life. And going the traditional route, which I did do, and I had a corporate job and I was trying to pretend to be the type of person that everybody wanted me to be in that world and had to conceal the parts of myself, my personality that were too weird for that sort of corporate structure and to, I didn't feel a lot of, I felt a lot of creative freedom in whatever job I took on because that's just my personality. So even if it was the most mundane task, like I had so many different temp jobs and things. There was one where all I did for two weeks was stand in front of a photocopier, remove paper clips from, from stacks of paper, photocopy them, put the paper clips aside 
and then walk those to somebody. Like that's all I did for eight hours a day for two weeks, which was really fucking boring. But I like made these origami little um, boxes for putting the paper clips in. And I like came up with a fancy system for organizing everything. And I like uh, redid the file system for them. And so, you know, I'm always somebody that's trying to kind of make whatever I do interesting. Um, but it was, it was soul sucking to not feel like that had really any impact. And it was dissatisfying on a spiritual level to not be doing the type of work that I really cared about or be able to express who I actually was. And I mean, that's sort of a journey of self-actualization that we all go through in our lives. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot of courage to jump off the cliff and really commit yourself to art because it's not an easy path. It's not a financially secure path. It's not a super healthy or wise path, but it can be a very fulfilling one. And you just kind of have to prioritize your values, I guess. So um, the number one important thing to me, my desire to Okay, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm named Rose, but <laughs> I always think of the flower metaphor when it comes to how I want to be in the world as far as like blossoming fully, you know, being connected through my roots to a whole network of, of other things that are also blossoming and, you know, just a beautiful array of nature. Um, now I'm going off into weird territory. I'll do you one other one that I, that I think of when I think of you and, and how you relate to putting to, to your, to your artists in general. And I thought about this the other day because uh, my Facebook memories came up, um, you know, four years ago, the release of Punk Rock Ghost Story, and you had reposted a video of me like tearing up the boxes and pulling out the books. And, you know, you were just as excited for me as, you know, as I was to get the books. And I think, I think you often give off the, the same kind of love to all your authors that, that a teacher does when, when their students like go on to do really well in class and, and, and move forward into the world and do other things because also some of your authors have gone on to like really high levels of success. I mean, we're, what's going on with Jeremy Robert Johnson right now with The Loop is just amazing. And um, I can't be more excited for the guy. Um, Me too. You know, yeah, I know, because this community, nobody feels jealousy, nobody's mad like like we're all like rooting and like every time i see another like amazing review or like i i literally like pump my fist when i when i see it because i'm just so excited for a guy who works so freaking hard on on his art form and i think that that's that comes into the community and how everybody has like supported each other and looked out for each other and 
And uh, so once a razor head got going and, and got moving, like you guys have put out an, an extreme amount of, of work over the years. That's been a lot. Yeah, over, Can you talk over 400 titles. Um, there's 384 of them currently in print. Uh, and I was just reflecting on that the other day. I, I work with 110 different writers right now. Um, and so it's sort of crazy because a few months ago I was feeling very overwhelmed. Um, just, you know, how the world is right now. So it's easy yeah. to, to get down. And, and I was also, uh, you know, I've been going through some transitions internally at my company and, uh, trying to sort out new ways of doing things and better ways of communicating and all of that. So, uh, it's like really interesting now being 20 years into my career and trying to sort of reinvent things while they are, while still maintaining, while still, um, moving forward like it's 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 always been that way i mean i've always been someone that's kind of learning as i go and trying out different things and but now what i've found is that i have like a 20-year trail of that stuff and it's kind of a like looking at everyone and going oh i need to get everyone back on the same page because <laughs> i i think i've done a little bit um you know, it's hard to keep up with where I'm at now. <laughs> and I haven't been doing the most excellent job of, um, of reaching out and, and finding ways to bring people along a journey with me. And I, I, uh, that's just where my head is at. You know, that's my self-reflection. I feel like what, back to like this idea of, of how I relate to my authors, um, and the flower idea and everything. Another thing is that I've been really thinking about the garden that I am tending. And if I think about my publishing company as a garden with all of these beautiful flowers and everybody is unique and everything has its own special place in that garden, even the weeds, it's like, how can I now curate better pathways to guide people through and feature each you know, each element in its most wonderful way and, um, and connect those pathways and, you know, make people feel comfortable and, and enjoy everything. So that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking now about well, how I would like to relate to people. Well, and I just listened to this really cool interview with uh, Ian, Ian Mackay of um, Fugazi. And, uh, you know, he's been doing Discord records since the early 80s and still owns the house that he's run Discord out of since like the 80s. Mm. And he was talking about how just the concept of a record had changed so much since they started making records because physical media doesn't exist anymore and how he had to like reframe his brain to not think of A side and B side and yeah, I'm going through something similar in publishing, too, yeah. you know, I mean, I have seen so many things change. Like I said, it started out with chapbooks, then we were some of the pioneers of using print-on-demand technology, which everybody's using print-on-demand technology now, even the big five are printing their backlist through POV. So yeah. it was, uh, you know, discovering that new way of printing, and then ebooks, I mean, ebooks existed in 99, but they were like, 
PDFs or not even PDFs. I think there was this other format that only it didn't really catch on. And um, no, so now we've got eBooks, which it's funny because some people are like, why, why, are, why isn't more stuff on eBook? And I'm like, because they were things I published before eBooks existed and I'm still catching up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's that. And then, but my, my current thing is social media and the landscape of how people receive information and, and how they engage with um, creatives and learning more about that because I feel like I initially was really embracing of that and then I uh, kind of found my comfort zone and then I sort of stagnated and so I'm really trying to I don't know the like Facebook and Twitter and everything in our political climate is just so torturous to try to interact with right now. right now yeah yeah uh, but I'm trying my best because I believe that, and you'll you'll understand this uh, as a fellow punk. No one gives a shit, you know. No one gives a shit. Yeah. But it's our job to make them give a shit, and and you know, just like we were saying before, that DIY attitude. It's like if you if you see something you want in the world, you make it happen, you know. You gotta be the change you want to see in the world, like Gandhi said. And I think that that's the most important sentiment to remember right now. Um, I mean, to get political for a minute, like that's why we all need to go vote. But there's all sorts of ways that you can make a difference in this world. And I think that I know because I'm friends with so many artists and creative people and writers everyone is struggling right now. Everyone is suffering. There's a lot of mental health issues. It's really hard to remember your purpose. It's hard to get yourself to, you know, get going. Some people approach it differently. I mean, some people, like there's, there's a battle of mindsets, you know, and, and any artist understands this. You have to battle your own mind and you have to make sure that you remain committed to your purpose because that's super important right now. And that's, right. and, and that's I, the message I want to say today. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, everybody remember to keep creating art. That's how we're going to make a difference. Well, and it's funny because like this started for me in doing a podcast was originally just doing dickheads. And then um, when I was doing dickheads, I started doing more interviews. And I realized that I was learning so much by just doing the process of the interviews. And if other people got anything out of listening to them, that's great. But I'm learning a lot, so I like doing them. And then what I decided when and when I broke away to do my own was if there's an author I want to talk to about their book, if there's a person, and I just recently interviewed a friend of mine who sang for our local hardcore band that the and he went on to be a war correspondent and cover war zones. And I was like, well, that's different from my format, but I want to talk to him and I want to get his point of view and I think other people would get something from it and these are why I'm choosing these things and when you when you look at the the per when you were talking about purpose I think it's so valuable for us to have conversations about why we're doing things and our purpose and you know to really reflect on those things and not just do them but to do them with purpose 
because um, any little thing, you never know what could be the one thing. Like, for example, one of my favorite sayings about writing is an Oliver Stone saying where he said, the most important equation in writing is ass plus chair equals writing. And I say it to myself all the time. <laughs> and uh, well, I'm still talking. I say it to myself all the time, but it was just a random one thing he said in an interview, right? Just random one thing. And it spoke to me and years later, I don't even think he would remember saying it, but it's a thing that, you know, and Stephen Graham Jones recently said, you know, that he had a, a similar thing like that too, you know, um, where he was like, he has one of his favorite pieces of writing advice came from like a random thing that Elmore Leonard said in a conversation. And so I think it's important to have these conversations and have give people an opportunity to listen and, and, and share your experience. So speaking of that, 400 titles. Um, we've gotten into the background. Can you tell me some things about some books that you've been working on recently that, or even some back catalog things? I noticed recently you set up a page for Bookshop. Um, that's yeah. a really important thing, that, that page for Bookshop. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I am really excited about this new site. It's called bookshop.org, not com, org. Mm. And um, it is fueled actually by Ingram distribution. So that's what's, that's who's doing the order fulfillment on the back end. And our books are distributed through Ingram. So all of them are available through that site. But the site is constructed to be an alternative to Amazon. And it's 75% uh, of their profits are given to bookstores. Mm -hmm. And so you can either choose which bookstore you want by selecting the shop for the local store in your area because um, people can get affiliate shops. So that's how these bookstores are connected. It's not like, I mean, a lot of them, you can put it on your own website too. So if you go to your bookstore's website, it might be connected to bookshop, but you can go directly to bookshop.org and find your store on there. And then if you buy the book through that, um, the, the profits will go to them. And then if you buy it through my store, similar, we, the, the profits will be donated to bookstores and I'll also get like, you know, the authors and I will get a little extra on there because we're also an affiliate. Um, so it's kind of a win, 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 uh, situation because the, um, you know, all the books are always available. They can be fulfilled. Bookstores don't have to have the burden of stocking everything, but they can sell to their customers and to anybody online through this site. And, um, it started in January in the US and I think they're gonna launch a similar site in the UK in November. But uh, I just recently set up an Eraserhead Press shop on there and I'm still loading in all of our titles, but I, uh, but what I really like about it is that you can curate lists. So I started putting things in categories so that you'll right now see a list for new releases, you'll see a list for people um, who are just getting into bizarre fiction. Um, and because there's the HP Lovecraft Film Festival going on this weekend, I created a list for people who like weird fiction and HP uh, Lovecraft because it's happening online and usually we go and, and sell books at that event. So these are like the titles that I would have brought to the event. Yeah, right. I love that site. I did a similar one for Amazon. So, I mean, there's still the, the books are still on Amazon too. 
but this bookshop site is exciting because right now the, book, the independent bookstores are really struggling and they can use any help they can get. Yeah, and I was really excited because it gives me a way to promote my books to support um, Mysterious Galaxies, which is our local bookstore that, you know, I really want to support. And um, so specifically, you know, I, I looked and saw that I could select Mysterious Galaxies when I buy stuff through Bookshop. Um, for example, this Norman Spinrad book, uh, Sound of the Gun, that I just bought through bookshop.org a couple, like a month or two ago. And I was able to just click on uh, Mysterious Galaxies and there you go. And uh, cool. which is funny too, because I gave Rob, my friend that works there, a hard time because I was like, now I'm finding books I couldn't find. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Um, not that they don't have a great selection. They do. It's a great bookstore. And I miss browsing there. And uh, the last event I went to is Sylvia Maria Garcia. Um, I did, she did a signing there and it was the day that the NBA shut down. Um, so it was like literally the last thing before the epidemic was. Wow. Was a Sylvia well. Maria Garcia signing <laughs> at Mysterious Galaxies. And um and I remember I was halfway, we were halfway through that reading. And so I heard somebody behind me, like say on their phone, like, oh shit, the NBA canceled their season. And oh. like, that's how close to COVID it, it was. <laughs> but wow. uh, yeah, and so it's cool to be able to support the, the local bookstores and, and you can, people can select, you know, bookstores that they, if they hear about bookstores in other cities that they want to support too, that you can do that as well. Um, uh i i know yeah or if you don't think of any specific one it just goes into a pool of money that's then divvied up to all the people who participate yeah bookshop.org is great i love it i'm so glad our titles are on there that's really incredible um and uh uh looking forward to 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 being able to use that link instead of uh amazon all the time when uh, good i'm happy to hear that that you were pleased to see that uh, yeah, that's one of the exciting new improvements that I've been making. And I'm working on a newsletter for authors right now um, because I want to start sending them a newsletter. And I, uh, I have a bunch of cool things that I'm going to tell people about. Um, another thing is I rented a new office space. That's where I am now. It's not decorated yet. But uh, it's really great to have an office again. You remember my old office. But then I... Um, I, I got rid of it when I broke my ankle in 2017 to, you know, I, I couldn't walk and mm -hmm. uh, wanted to save money. So I ditched the office to do that, but then I never got it back until this year. I, uh, for the last three years, I have been working out of public libraries, which has been great. I love it. There's two in particular in town that have been super comfortable for me. I'm able to find a spot every day. It's like free internet. All the, you know, libraries are wonderful, especially when you're a book publisher because I'm so inspired. I mean, when I'm designing a book, I have endless resources in front of me so I can just randomly pick books off the shelf and check out their designs if I want tips on fonts or whatnot, you know. And, um, and, and also one of my habits was that I would go each day and the first thing I would do would just randomly walk the shelves and grab like three or four books that jumped out at me. I, I don't know. I had no logic to it. It was just like intuition. And I would sit down with them and 
kind of page through them and see what sort of information the world had for me that day. Um, so I'm really sad that the libraries aren't open right now for me to be doing that. And that's when I made the decision to rent a new space uh, because I really can't work from home. It's just not, it's too distracting for me, so. Yeah, I tried that uh, when I wrote a novella a couple of years ago that it takes place in the San Diego Public Library, so I wrote it there. And um, just as an experiment, I'm not sh sure I'm happy with the, <laughs> the finished book, but yeah. I, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of fun writing it. And um, it was really interesting writing the book in the building where a bulk of the action took place. And, um, and so I had the experience of working in the library and there was definitely pluses and minuses to that. <laughs> well, it really depended on what library I went to, you know. Um, some of them were better than others. But like there was one in a smaller town where it wasn't very busy and the librarians became like my coworkers, you know, like we made friends and I'd say hello. We like chit chat over a cup of coffee, like catch up about like new releases and stuff like that. I don't know how, how to display books. We'd get nerdy about stuff. Um, so I kind of missed that. <laughs> You'd love the San Diego downtown library is uh, nine stories and has a sky deck. Um, mm. and a rare book and I would always work on the ninth floor in the rare books room and, oh yeah that's not cool yeah it was very cool I, it. But, the other uh, library that I loved was at a, at a liberal arts college here in town and I'm not even going to announce where it is because it's so super special that I don't want anyone else to know you can go work there without being a student <laughs> I, I'm guessing I know which one but I'll let you keep the secret <laughs> But uh, um, I could be wrong, but um, anyways, uh, yeah, so uh, the Portland community has been really, uh, the Bizarro community in Portland locally, like at least when I lived there, I know like we would meet from time to time, we would have gatherings, we'd uh, like not just for BizarroCon, but just hangout sessions. And it was, it was always a really cool community and fun thing to be a part of. And, um, you know, I, I think that community feeling is something that, that comes through in, um, in in the way that the the books present themselves because they're not just a catalog of titles. It's it's a community, and and I think that's obvious. And um, and I don't really have a question there. I just really wanted I for for, for one thing, I just wanted to put that out there that. It is real. That was a, that, that is the thing that exists. Um, Portland's not perfect. There's pluses and minuses to it. Um, uh -huh. There's things I miss about Portland. I'm still repping. Um, but uh, yeah, and I'm repping your hometown. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> you are. And uh, but the, but the thing about it is that um, community now is so is so hard to come by because we're in this pandemic situation we have to do it mm -hmm. through zoom and all that how have you been um you you said you've been thinking about this you want to give us any spoilers or or, or you want to you want to hold on to those ideas till they till they're ready um that's a good question let me consider what i will say is that it's been tough dude like, um, we have, 
Okay, first of all, we have been staying in touch. Um, yeah. I mean, our, our first actual gathering of the Portland people um, since this quarantine happened is tomorrow at the Teresa Pollock Memorial. Um, so that's an interesting time to gather. But we're just going to wear masks and stand in the park, you know. Um, the, we haven't really done any online things. I've been talking to people individually. Um, so where I'm at is that like when the lockdown first started, um, I really went internal and focused on my domestic life. Like, am I going to be able to pay my bills if shit goes crazy in the next few months? You know, um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go shopping. So how am I going to organize my, my menu, which things are, you know, I started focusing on home projects. I reorganized my pantry. I like did some home fix it up things and, and that, and it was like, I couldn't even wrap my head around publishing. I, I was actually planning BizarroCon like the weekend, but I was about to announce dates. I mean, actually there was a few people that heard the dates cause I'm like, Hey, does this work? Does this work? And then, uh, I was like about to sign the contract with Edgefield. It was for November dates. And I'm like, I just didn't feel it. And this was before they had actually canceled things, you know, like yeah. before the NBA, before all that. And I, I wasn't sure there wasn't any like real guidance there either. So I just had this gut feeling that mm, I better not try to push it. And so we didn't plan a bizarro con for this November. But I mean, my full intention is to get it back into the fall because the last time we had one was in January and that was the most bizarro, bizarro con ever. But um, like now is the time for, yeah, for taking care of our families and for taking care of ourselves and for taking care of our mental health and all of that. And there was a part of me that was feeling kind of guilty that I wasn't available to people. I mean, I really did withdraw a bit in that time, but I think everybody understood because everybody else was kind of doing the same thing. So it's, it's only my own guilt because I'm such a social organizer, you know? And um, so, so I haven't really been there for people. I am still here for you, but uh, you know, I, I'm going through my own thing too. And, uh, and it was really in July that it started really getting to me and I had forgotten how to socialize. Like I had, I was feeling social anxiety, which is not me. I'm a very extroverted, friendly person that has no problem talking to people, but I couldn't do it. I, I like couldn't even write an email because I was like thinking everybody hated me. I mean, it was just this weird psychosis, right? And um, so I started reaching out to some close friends and uh, then I realized like, oh yeah, nobody hates me. <laughs> You know, and then it's like, like, I was like, they're not talking to me, they don't like me, you know, that stupid thing. And then I'm like, wait, you're not talking to them, just give them a call. <laughs> so I did that. And then I reached out to some people I respect in the industry because you know, I was paying attention to industry news and uh, obsessing over sales and really worried about, you know, the future of our economy. And, um, I'm self-employed and I make my living completely off of publishing books. So, I mean, this is like real fucking big deal to me. And, uh, I, but it was all cool because I just 
focus on coming up with a plan. It really made me think seriously in ways that I needed to. And uh, also I had to really dig deep because um, like I was saying before, you gotta get in touch with your purpose to make it through this kind of time. Um, so where I'm at now is really, I'm, I'm more in love with my job right now than I have been in like a decade. And things are doing really well. Our sales have actually increased, which I don't know if that's just due to people staying at home and reading. And if you are, thank you, um, or what. But it is inspiring to see things kind of get a little bit of a boost. I am focusing on a campaign this month called Bizarro October. And we're going to be uh, just encouraging people to read and write bizarre fiction. So um, I'm, that's part of the thing that I'm sending in my author newsletter. I know it's like the third and I haven't told everybody all the details yet. But my idea there is just to, in whatever ways that you can, get out the word about bizarre and kind of like bring some more community spirit back to life because I'm, I'm ready now. You know, like I said, I was withdrawn before, but now I'm like, okay, let's, let's come back to life. Let's reconnect because I don't know about you. I mean, maybe that's how you're feeling too, because we're talking now, but it's like, I just am starved for connecting with people right now. So thank you. Well, I, I can say this. I did sense your energy recently and like I could sense, um, just through online stuff that I could, I could sense your energy feeling really positive and, 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 and moving forward. And it's funny because, um, you know, it's, uh, it can be any kind of, you know, the, the, the pandemic had an, it, I happened to just start a, um, a novel that I knew was going to be my longest novel ever right before it started. Right. And so I was so focused on the book that the first, like, I wrote 40,000 words in the first two weeks of the pandemic. And I was just like, oh, can't go out. Okay. I'm flying. And, mm -hmm. um, because this is my first attempt at a kind of mainstream hard sci-fi novel. And um, it, and it was funny because even though it has nothing to do with viruses or pandemics, it was greatly affected by the times that we were in. Um, five, I had outlined this book five years before the pandemic. And in the outline, I had a scene where a character is going into a grocery store and finding empty shelves and like looking for things. And it was funny because there was a scene in the book that got totally inspired by the fact that the day before I wrote it, I went into the grocery store and the only pasta on the shelf was kale pasta, <laughs> like in the corner, <laughs> right? And so then like, I outlined this scene five years earlier, having no idea that now I'm gonna add this detail about the kale pasta <laughs> because I'm living it. And the book became much more of an exercise in talking about partisan politics than I ever imagined, you know. And I recently did an interview with Josh Mallerman, and he was talking about how he could not have foreseen when he wrote Mallory, the sequel, that the debate over whether to wear the blindfold or not would be such an allegory for the masks in our world. And like, he just was not seeing that coming, right? Fascinating. Yeah. In all of our perspectives on the pandemic are, are individual, but we're having the, 
I think now having this ability to communicate and to talk about things, we can like, you know, I think we're going to start to see how it's affecting our art and, and, and um, in interesting ways. And it's funny because people don't want to, to write about it directly. I know everyone's like, every book takes place before 2020 right now. Um, and I understand that. And I just decided to write another world. But, you know, we're, we now have this chance to, to bring people back to our community and to like say, like, here's the books, here's what we're doing. And I know you just put out a new book with an author I, I hadn't heard of before. So can you tell me about this book? And, and, and yeah, I'm really excited. So um, the, the book that we just released on October 1st is called Captain Clive's Dream World. And it's by John Bassoff and you would love him. He lives in Colorado and he's a super cool dude. He's um, kind of on the, like, he, he's one of those people that was in sort of like the crime noir scene, you know, with J. David Osborne and Michael Kazeki. like when they were in Butchercon and stuff. I, I think that he's, um, you know, familiar with that end of things. And his work does have like uh, sometimes that element but really, it's like this dark and gritty, often urban settings. And this book in particular is very Lynchian, kind of Twin Peaks, and um, mixed with like Stepford Wives and Twilight Zone. And it takes place in this small desert town that is um, constructed next to an, a former glorious theme park. And it was kind of inspired from his visit to Disney World, where there, he learned about this utopian vision uh, a vision for this utopian town suburb to be constructed next to i don't know if it exists or not but outside of disney world and it's like this company town you know that's that's all like disney world-ish but in real life town and uh and it's about this this deputy that moves there and is um he's confronted with the townspeople that are really not as you expect them to be. It seems like nobody ever sleeps. Um, there's something creepy going on. Girls keep going missing. Nobody will help him figure out what's happening. And uh, it has a lot of like magical realist elements, like the witches from Macbeth appear in it. And uh, there's just strange, bizarre stuff happening. And John is such an excellent writer. I mean, the instant you start reading his work, you will trust his voice and know what a good storyteller he is and, and just relax and it's it's just fun ride. So it also has a, a lot of, as you were mentioning about like how we couldn't have predicted the political climate now or some of the things that were facing the pandemic. I mean, the dystopian elements of this world are such, a, such an allegory through the political climate of, of what's happening in America right now and like greed and consumerism and corruption and all of those topics are really a part of the theme of this work. So I, I think it's an excellent book. I totally recommend it to pretty much everyone. You don't even have to be a like diehard Bizarro fan. Um, you know, it's, it's great for science fiction readers, it's great for horror, absolutely perfect read for October. Awesome. It sounds great. And um, it sounds like uh, uh, one that our dickheads listeners would probably enjoy as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. This come in the submissions process to you or like that? Yeah. So I, I published a, another book by John Bassoff uh, last year called The Drive-Thru Crematorium. 
which is a fun one too. And uh, he, yeah, he submitted to me in 2018, I think was it. Um, and it was just one of the ones that came through. I can't remember what it was that, uh, I, I think it was the title that captured my attention, the drive through crematorium. Um, and then I, uh, you know, I, I looked into him. He had already written something like six other books. So, you know, he, he had good experience under his belt. As, you know, I knew he could, I, I could tell he knew what he was doing as a writer. And, um, and then once I decided to accept his book and I talked to him on the phone, um, we just clicked right away. He is, he's like a Jeremy or Cody kind of guy. That's why I say you would really like him because he's really charismatic. He's a school teacher. Oh yeah, that's another reason why you might connect with him. Um, so I would definitely say you should reach out to him, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely uh, check out his book and uh, probably, uh, I'm trying to bring as many writers as I can on the podcast for beyond the fact that, you know, I believe in the bookosphere and supporting other books. That's, yeah, I believe in that karma. Um, but I also just love the chance to learn. Um, and, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why too, and, and, uh, people will notice probably at, at they've gotten to this point in the interview, I've tried to talk less about who they publish, who you've published, because I'm more interested in hearing about Rose, uh, because we know a lot about the Carlton Mellicks, the Jeremy Robert Johnsons, the Cameron Pierces, because they do a lot of interviews promoting their books and they do a lot of that stuff. And, 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 um, and I wanted to get a, a flavor for, um, or I wanted everyone to get it because, because I've worked with you and I know what it's like to work with you, but um, I wanted people to understand that like how well thought out everything goes behind the scenes with the racer head. And so moving forward, um, I suspect that we're going to see a bunch of really new and interesting, awesome projects so that people can follow along. Do you have any other books coming out soon that you might, or near future ones that you're working on? Yeah, I do. I was, I had a whole list of them pulled up on my computer until it just, I just realized I had shut itself off. So uh, give me a minute to pull that back up. But um, yeah, I mean, I kind of, pushed a lot of the books that I had planned earlier in this year back when um, COVID happened mm -hmm. because uh, the future was just so unclear that I couldn't wrap my head around how to conceive of promoting a book or proceeding. Ahead. You know, I had to focus on different priorities at that time. So I kind of told everybody, hey, if you don't mind, let's just kind of wait until we see what's going on. Um, well, and, and you never know what it's going to be because sometimes too, like a random thing, like I know a couple months ago, um, uh, cause you know, I don't get a ton of, <laughs> I don't get a ton of sales every month, but a couple of months, like a month or two ago, I had just like this tiny little uptick and I was like, oh, yeah. I was like trying to figure out what it was. And, yeah. and I was talking about wildfires and I think, mm -hmm. Talking about wildfires, sold a couple copies of *Ring of Fire* because I was, I was saying like it's real. I think I was actually saying it's hard to promote a book about wildfires when these horrible things are happening. And then people and that like, works. Wait, what did you say about wildfires? You know, and 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 I like I don't. You never know what it is. 
like could be like the one thing that uh, uh, promotes sales. So uh, we got that list going now, or yeah, it's a it's back. Um, so first off, uh, I guess I'll take this opportunity to to mention a few books that people might have missed that have just recently come out, and um, those would be uh, Human Fish by Benjamin Devos and his uh, book is one of the ones on the New Bizarre Author series this year. And I know people always love hearing about the New Bizarre Author series, which is our imprint for promoting, um, you know, work by new, uh, newer bizarre writers. And uh, so his book is an awesome um, twist on the mermaid narrative. It's, it's a, it's a, Dark bizarro adventure of drug trafficking, interspecies romance, and the ghost of our ghosts of our past that come back to haunt us. Um, and then Snuggle Club by Carlton Mullet III came out this year. It's a uh, ris ridiculous cosmic horror story about a guy who, um, you know, he, he's recently widowed and he's seeking comfort, and he decides to experiment by going to one of these snuggle clubs where people just cuddle each other, and uh, it, it's very awkward, and it gets really weird and dark. Um, and then there's Hell of Death by Vince Kramer, which is a subversive, bizarre comedy about a group of teenagers who journey through the circle of hell, circles of hell, and uh, it's, it's very wacky. Like, Vince has a very peculiar sense of humor, um, so if you're a uh, Yes, you know, if you if you read the back cover description and and you think it's funny, that's books for you. If you don't, then stay far away from it. <laughs> um, the Little Punk Princess by Sarah Karasek, which is a dystopian punk rock fairy tale. Uh, she's another one of the new bizarre authors, Sarah, and I think she just did an interview on the Bazong podcast, so you can learn more about her there. Hope that's okay to plug. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, wait, I just promoted another podcast on this podcast. Okay, cool. No, no, no. Uh, I've been on Bazong too, so I, I love Drake, <laughs> so please do. <laughs> um, the Bad Box by Carlton Mellick uh, is a YA bizarre horror about a kid who, um, it, it's about fifth graders, and their teacher has a good box and a bad box, and if you, um, however you do on your tests at school or however you behave, you're rewarded by being able to stick your hand in the good box and receive some kind of wonderful magical award like the ability to shoot rainbows out of your eyes or learn Japanese instantly or something cool like that. And then if you uh, do poorly, you have to stick your hand in the bad box and you end up with something like crickets in your bloodstream or uh, worms for arms. And so it's really bad. And uh, it's actually a story about classism, about the struggle of um, overcoming oppression, uh, you know, because what's happening is the people that get the bad box are held down by the bad box and they can't succeed. And um, so there's this whole allegory going on there, but it's really a sweet YA story. And then there's um, Captain Clive's Dream World, which I just mentioned by John Bassoff. Um, Snap, Crackle, Fuck You by Simon Ore, who is uh, another new writer, but you might be familiar with him because uh, we've known him for years. He works for Starburns Media. He works on Rick and Morty. He runs a comic book imprint through Starburns and is a movie producer. So 
Um, he's a really cool guy and his book is hilarious. It's also about a theme park, but this one is where the park mascots are actually um, genetically mutated to become, so like instead of Mickey Mouse being in a costume, it would be, you know, he's had cosmetic surgery to look big mouse ears and stuff. Oh, only um, this isn't Disneyland, it's uh, cereal land. So all of the mascots are based around cereal, like the Toucan Sam and the Snap Crackle Pop people and stuff like that. Um, his Dirty Portal, his, I always get that one wrong, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. His Dirty Little Portal by <laughs> Luke Condor. <laughs> but, um, is another bizarre author series book where uh, it, it takes place in a world where the only emotion that people can experience is sadness. And uh, it's about a guy who discovers a portal to another dimension in the bottom of his coffee cup one day. And he can travel to an alternate dimension where he's a happy version of himself. And he kind of becomes addicted to that experience. Um, and then there's Coming up also Echo by John Urbancic, and uh, that one is a magical surreal story about a man who steps through a mirror into another universe. Um, it's a love story. There's Widow of the Amputation by Robert Guppy, who, Robert Guppy is another one that you should definitely check out. I don't know if you've heard of him yet, but um, he's, he's a college professor at a school in Northern California, which one right now um and he's a clarion west grad he's a really amazing um science fictional horror bizarre writer and his book uh the widow of the Amputation is a collection of um novels and they're all each one is about a crime and they're all weird um he wrote a series of articles recently on salon.com that if you haven't read them, you might have them to check out about QAnon. He had a friend that uh, kind of went into that direction with QAnon cult and got interested in learning more about what that is. And so he uh, did a whole series of articles on Salon. So, um, so those are like the ones on Eraserhead Press. I mean, I also have books coming on, on Deadite. Um, but I, I don't know if I want to go through down the whole list or where we're at with this. Uh, Give us some titles, but, um, but okay. we, I do need to, I do need to wrap things up here a little bit because okay. I'm recording a dickheads episode in 25 minutes. So. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, can you hear me again? I yeah, think I, uh, I heard you. It just was a little quieter. Give us the okay. titles and then, uh, and we'll wrap things up. Okay, so on Deadite, the main titles that I want to uh, bring to your attention are uh, Shapeshifter by JF Gonzalez that we're going to be reprinting, Ooh. The Killings by JF Gonzalez and Rat James White. Um, that, that one is a, a, a really important story to read now. Um, Suburban Gothic by Brian Keane and Brian Smith, that's coming up. And Murder Girls by Christine Morgan. Uh, and Gush, Tales of Vaginal Horror by Gina Rinaldi. Whoa. And then, 
yeah, that one is exciting. Um, and then the, the last title I'll tell you about is called uh, Burn the Motherfucker Down. And that one is an anthology that we're putting together for charity to benefit the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund and the Equal Rights Initiative. And it's being edited by Rath James White and Andre Duza. And it's going to be uh, extreme horror stories about police brutality and systemic racism. Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds really cool. Um, wow, that's a really cool light up. I'm super, you know, I'm excited about anything Gina does. So you hit me with the new Gina title. I didn't know it was coming. So uh, that's- I know, I've been kind of holding a secret because it's it's really an exciting uh, uh, collection of hers. It's all about, um, as I said, vaginal horror. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, when she, when she when she wants to go dark, she uh, I, I'm still uh, recovering a little bit from Mother Puncher all, all these years later. Um, <laughs> but uh, Rose, it was awesome to speak with you. Um, to get, um, I'm really just excited to spread the word about everything that you're doing, and um, we'll probably do it again in the future. Uh, I think. Um, this is uh, really good for people to hear to just because uh, I think the other thing too is like all of us kind of uh, had those struggles early uh, on this time. Well, a lot of us did. I was too busy writing. I was too focused. <laughs> but uh, um, and that's the thing is one of the things that's helped about doing three podcasts in addition to writing this is that I just have been keeping myself busy. Um, and uh, that works for some people. I know it doesn't work. David, it's like, what we have to remember is that when everything else is out of control, the, the things that we do have control over, and they're the only things that we ever have control over, are our own thoughts, our own words, and our own actions. So keep doing your thing. Like, that's, that's how you can make sense of everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you too. And um, uh, we'll, I'll have links in the show notes for everybody for uh, the bookshop page and all that. And um, uh, keep up all the awesome work that, that you do. Thanks, Rose. Thank you. Thanks.